The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, agriculture, and fine food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Eve Van Cotter. She is a professor emeritus at the University of Chicago, where she is the Frederick H. Rawson Professor in the Department of Medicine and former director of the Sleep Metabolism and Health Center at the University of Chicago. I heard her speak at Nutrition and Exercise Research Day at the University of Missouri, where she spoke about the impact of sleep disturbances and circadian misalignment on human cardiometabolic risk. My interest in sleep has to do with the promotion of obesity as well as the lack of good glucose control. So we're going to be talking about all that. She has a lovely accent. She's originally from Belgium. So welcome, Dr. Van Cotter. Thank you for having me on your on your show. I look forward to uh, a chat with you about the importance of sleep disturbances for obesity and diabetes. Well, tell me something. How did you become interested in this area of research? Well, I was actually trained. Uh, my college degree is in physics, and uh, this was at the University of Brussels. And we were very fortunate at the time, I was fortunate at the time, to have a professor who eventually received a Nobel Prize. And, of course, all of the students wanted to work with that professor. He was interested in how oscillations can arise spontaneously in biological systems. His name was uh, Prigogine. And inspired by him, I did a master's thesis on the on oscillations in biological systems and then I was also very fortunate that a group of uh, endocrinologists in the hospital of the University of Brussels started measuring hormone levels across the 24-hour cycle. This was uh, 1972-73 and radio immunoassays had become commercially available. And for the first time, it was possible to take small blood samples every half hour and to measure the levels of different hormones. And the big surprise is that contrary to what uh, was believed that, you know, the endocrine system was homeostatically regulated so that blood levels would stay constant. They were not constant at all. They were, they had a definite pattern of change over the 24-hour cycle. And these endocrinologists asked me whether I would help them analyze these data. And I thought it was very interesting and they were a very engaging and excellent. They were teaching me a lot, really. And so this is how I I got started. And of course, uh, one of the major physiological processes that affects hormone levels across the 24-hour cycle is whether we are asleep or awake. And that was the beginning of my interest of, you know, how important uh, sleep 
is for the hormonal system. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because one of the slides that you showed when you were speaking at the University of Missouri had to do with how we are getting less sleep today than we did decades ago. Talk to me a little bit about what you have found in your research. How much sleep does the average American get today compared to decades ago? Well, today the average American sleeps between six and seven hours. I'm talking about adults in the active uh, population. This has been the numbers that have emerged from a variety of polls as well as from studies that have used objective measures of sleep duration using, you know, a Fitbit-like device called the Actigraph. And this represents really six, seven hours of sleep, and with many people, up to 30% of the population in the U.S. sleeping less than six hours per night on work days. This represents, it seems, a decrease in sleep duration by at least an hour and a half to two hours that has occurred between the 60s and and today, uh, really with the advent of uh, the 24-hour society. So it's a very big change in sleep duration. I like to compare it to the impact of a prescription sleeping pill that Mm -hmm. people take to increase their sleep duration. And on average, a prescription sleeping pill at the maximum recommended dose will increase sleep duration by 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. But we, as Americans, have decreased our sleep duration in the past three decades or so by more than an hour and a half. Wow. And one of the slides that you showed that impacted me the most showed how sleep, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sleep was more important than exercise even in terms of regulating blood glucose. Yes, actually, uh, that is a study that we, we conducted to examine how different types of sleep disorders, what the effect size was of different types of sleep disorders on the risk of developing diabetes. So multiple studies that have shown that people with insufficient sleep duration or poor sleep quality or obstructive sleep apnea are much more likely to develop uh, type 2 diabetes after you control for even age and body mass index, a measure of adiposity, than people who have more normal sleep duration and quality. And we were, uh, it was actually one of the reviewers of our of our papers who were saying, you are saying that, you know, sleep disturbances uh, promote the development of type 2 diabetes, but how does sleep disturbance compare to, for example, being overweight or having a family history of diabetes or being very sedentary, which are known risk factors for type 2 diabetes. And so we embarked on a so-called meta-analysis to examine how sleep disturbances compare to so-called traditional risk factors. And in fact, sleep disturbances are in the range of traditional risk factors. So they are 
they should be mentioned on the guidelines for the diagnosis, treatment of type 2 diabetes and prevention of type 2 diabetes. Um, and they are, uh, in fact, uh, of a larger magnitude than sedentarity. Mm. You know, it's funny. I don't think that I've ever seen a doctor for a regular physical exam who has asked me how many hours of sleep I get. Yes, and that has to change. Now, you know, let's, let's remember that medical doctors, in the course of their training, the majority of them have, as a, almost a rite of passage, spend a few years with a highly restricted sleep during residency. Yes. And that, you know, it becomes a badge of honor to say that, you know, you can perform and, and survive uh, with a very much reduced sleep. So I think that uh, in some ways the medical profession is confronted with sleep restriction during their training and maybe less sensitive to the impact of insufficient sleep on performance and, and on mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. And our society seems to enable us to sleep less by having a coffee shop on every corner. Can we somehow compensate by taking these stimulants for the hours that we've lost? Well, it does not compensate for, at least, you know, in epidemiologic studies, when we examine the risk of developing obesity or diabetes, uh, and we control statistically for the self-reported intake of caffeine or coffee or caffeinated beverages, the risk remains the same. So, the summary of epidemiologic studies with self-report, sleep duration, self-report, caffeine intake, uh, does not suggest that the stimulants actually decrease the risk of developing either obesity or diabetes. Now, it remains that caffeine and, uh, is, a, is a powerful stimulant and that during the daytime it will certainly help reduce the sleepiness and some of the performance deficits of uh, sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. So I think all of us can probably remember a time when we've pulled an all-nighter to get something done, or we've had our sleep compromised. Maybe we have to catch an early flight, and we've only had maybe four hours of sleep. Can a person make up the damage from that loss of sleep? When it's uh, an acute event, like what you just mentioned, you know, a few a few times an all-nighter to finish a project, uh, a short night to take a flight, we can certainly recover sleep in the next in the following days if we give ourselves enough time. And I think that these acute uh, sleep loss situations are part of life and that they're not necessarily uh, deleterious as long as we pay the sleep debt. The problem is more day after day, insufficient sleep, a lifestyle of sleep restriction during the work week, 
And often it extends even uh, on the weekends, and it is that cumulative sleep debt mm-hmm. uh, that is chronic uh, that seems to be related to disease and particularly to metabolic disease. Do you want to talk about the mechanisms at all of how the sleep deprivation increases hyperglycemia or high blood glucose levels and increases risk for both obesity and type 2 diabetes? Well, you've mentioned, you know, the first major risk factor for developing diabetes is obesity, excess weight. And sleep restriction, insufficient sleep, promotes overeating and promotes overeating of calorie-rich nutrients. And so that happens because, as you, you know, probably well know, the human is kind of unique in trying to, trying to stay awake despite uh, pressure to sleep. There's no other mammal than the human that sleep deprived itself. Hmm. So, and what we have, uh, so sleeping and feeding are intimately related because feeding is essential for survival and you need to be awake to feed. So we have actually in our brain a population of neurons that specifically are active both to promote sleep to promote waking and to promote eating. So when uh, an animal will only, you know, extend wakefulness when food is scarce, and then the animal will stay awake longer to forage and try to find the essential nutrients for uh, its survival. Now the human, most of the time, stays awake in front of the television with potato chips and other snacks. So the human promotes wakefulness and at the same time eats. And so the mechanism really is that when we sleep deprive ourselves, the brain interprets this abnormal behavior as indicative of a caloric restriction and that more calories need to be absorbed. Hmm. But that's, in, in fact, not the case. Hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Eve Van Cotter. She is the Frederick H. Rawson Professor of Medicine in the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago. She is also the former director of the Sleep Metabolism and Health Center, also at the University of Chicago. Well, I want to ask about other things that happen when we try to get a good night's sleep. And I think one of the big intrusions into our lives, at least in my life, was the advent of everyone having a home computer and staying up late. And so that pushes us to stay up later to get work done, or perhaps we find fascinating information on the Internet and we want to stay up late to read it. But you also mentioned how the exposure to this blue light is also detrimental. And after hearing you speak, I installed Flux.com 
Well, I went to the Flux.com website and I installed a program to put my computer to have it have a more yellow light rather than blue. And I wonder if you can explain how that works and how computer use impacts our sleep quality. Well, that's a wonderful uh, idea that you had. And indeed, um, what is happening here is that a lot of the screens that we are using today emit primarily emitting blue light. And about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, it has been discovered that our biological clock in the brain, when it needs to be synchronized to the external light-dark cycle, is particularly sensitive to blue light. So it is the best way to adapt to jet lag, for example, is to be outdoors on a sunny day as soon as you arrive at your destination because it is that blue light from the sunny skies that will have a major influence on your clock and help it uh, to synchronize to the new local time. Hmm. The light, external light information is given to the biological clock by a wired connection between the retina and the biological clock, which is in the hypothalamus. It's called the retinohypothalamic tract. And the receptors in the retina that are sensitive to light, these photoreceptors are different from the rods and the cones that we use for vision. They are really uh, sensitive primarily to blue light. So when we use our screens at night, we are sending a signal that it isn't really night because we are sending a lot of blue light to these receptors and that information is relayed to the clock. Hmm. And so the clock has then a tendency to delay and make it harder for you to fall asleep and also to wake up the next morning. And so uh, simultaneously the hormone of the dark, uh, melatonin, is inhibited mostly by blue light. I see. Now, some people take melatonin supplements, and I remember you were asked about melatonin at the end of your talk. Do you want to let our listeners know anything that's key about melatonin? Well, key about melatonin is that it is the hormone of the dark, and it is a hormone that goes up around an hour before our usual bedtime, if we have regular usual bedtime. And it is more important in the timing of sleep than in the in sleep quality or sleep duration. Uh, contrary to what uh, most people think, melatonin uh, will not in, induce uh, more sleep or better sleep if it's taken by a healthy adult at the time, uh, at the usual bedtime. But it is a, it, it is very helpful to induce sleep when you need to sleep during the daytime and particularly in advancing uh, your bedtime uh, as might occur uh, in jet lag. Mm-hmm. So the only people who might benefit from uh, melatonin are people who are blind and uh, totally blind and have a 
cannot uh, cannot uh, perceive the light dark cycle and cannot entrain their clock at that point uh, providing a melatonin rhythm by taking a melatonin pill at regular bedtime can bring their biological clock in sync. Oh, that's very interesting. Well, let's talk about the sleeping environment. I think with more of these mobile devices, I hear parents say that they're concerned their children are going to bed with their devices, the devices are interfering with their sleep, the children are being exposed to the light, but there's also light that comes in from outside, unless we're lucky enough to live in a place that's, you know, totally dark at night, it's really difficult to find dark spaces. How important is it for our sleeping areas to be darkened? Should I make sure that I have darkened shades on my windows to make sure that I get a sounder, deeper sleep? It's certainly part of the recommendations of sleep hygiene to have a room as dark as possible, or you can also use eye shades that uh, produce that same effect uh, without uh, expensive draperies. But uh, yes, uh, a, a dark uh, environment is conducive to to sleep initiation and also to sleep maintenance. And it should, is really one of the pr- the first things you can do about improving uh, your nocturnal sleep. Having a cool room, not too hot and quiet, uh, are also a part of the recommended uh, strategies to optimize sleep quality. And I think when, as we age, there's, there are also changes in our ability to get a quality night's sleep. And I think about all of the risk factors for, say, weight gain or type 2 diabetes as we age. And I wonder how much of that is related to the aging process per se versus the fact that we're just not getting as high a quality sleep. Well, yes, I think that's a major hypothesis for which there is quite a bit of support, which is that sleep disorders, insufficient sleep, poor sleep quality uh, may well accelerate the aging process. At the same time, uh, reduced sleep duration and, and sleep quality is part of the aging process, you know, in the same way that we can't prevent our hair from right. turning white. Right. So as we age, I think it is even more important to have good sleep hygiene, to have regular life habits. I think that's, a you know, re- regular bedtimes, not to sleep deprive yourself and to keep a regular lifestyle where not only, you know, the bedtimes but the life habits are in sync with the biological clock. Studies of centenarians in different parts of the world have suggested that uh, these people who live so long and in good health have very regular lifestyle. They spend a lot of time in, in community. They have their meals at regular times and they go to bed at regular times and they generally live in rural areas.
Hmm, that's very interesting. Well, in preparation for our interview, I went through several of the many research papers that you have authored or co-authored. And the other point that I thought was so fascinating was not only does lack of sleep or sleep deprivation increase the risk for hyperglycemia, but it also seems to increase our risk for these pro-inflammatory states, which seem to be at the core of many chronic diseases. How does that work? Well, the immune system is uh, is very sensitive to uh, to sleep loss, and uh, that plays into the fact that we with sleep deprivation we're more likely to be infected by viruses. Uh, people have experienced that, you know, uh, once you're sleep deprived and uh, in a state of sleep debt, you're more likely to uh, catch a cold or the flu. We have shown many years ago that uh, the efficacy of the flu vaccine is uh, reduced when it is given to people who are actually sleep-deprived. We compare two cohorts of young, healthy people and vaccinated them with the influenza uh, vaccine, and the cohort that was sleep-deprived built only half of the antibodies as a cohort who had normal sleep. So that just tells you that if you want to be vaccinated by for against the flu, you better do it uh, after having had a few nights of good sleep rather than, you know, be, having been uh, really up uh, a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's so much emphasis on diet and what we eat when it comes to whether it's weight gain or preventing inflammation. And I just wish that we had more of an emphasis on sleep in our society. Are there policies underway in any nation that promotes sleep better than we do here in the United States? I don't think that uh, the United States is necessarily uh, behind. You know, one area that several countries are paying attention to is drowsy driving. Mm, And the United States has been, uh, you know, as a champion of litigation uh, at the forefront in that, in recognizing that uh, quite a number of car accidents, vehicle accidents in general, can be can be promoted by insufficient sleep. Uh, So that is is an area where uh, having a sleep that is recognized as a public health challenge. Now, the problem with sleep is that it is poorly taught in medical schools. Mm. And so while the body of evidence in top-notch scientific papers is very large, it hasn't really penetrated medical education as much. But sometimes it's discouraging to think that way, but uh, it took several decades to recognize that smoking was bad for your health. And I'm hoping that there will be a similar slow but, you know, clear evolution to teach people and, and bring into the culture that sleep is one of the pillars of health along with good nutrition and exercise. Mm. 
Mm, excellent. Well, Dr. Van Cotter, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for bringing this important pillar to the fore. We have been speaking with Dr. Eve Van Cotter. She is the Frederick H. Rawson Professor in the Department of Medicine and former director of the Sleep Metabolism and Health Center at the University of Chicago. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Van Cotter, thank you again for your research. I will provide a link for our listeners to the body of research that you've been involved with in case they want to read some more. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.